going to put Daniel to his use as our title. All right. All right. So yeah, so I just typed in Daniel De Jesus to the um, radio program here at Moore College of Art. I'm Jennifer Zarrow, recording for the Art Blog, and I'm sitting here with Daniel De Jesus. Thanks Hello. for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having um, me. So Daniel, we're here to talk about your work and life in the arts, and mm -hmm. you're you're born and raised in Philadelphia. Yes. And you're a painter, a musician, mm -hmm. a noted musician, a performer. You've mm -hmm. worked at Taller Puerto Ricano as a curator and educator. Yes. And just by way of introduction, how did you come to this life in the arts? Well, I um, uh, grew up in Philadelphia, um, surrounded by um, a, a lot of things that uh, I guess a person would perceive as, you know, sort of like just inner city life. And I was very much an introvert anyway, but also my parents were very protective because, you know, we lived in a neighborhood where not too far away you would find, you know, drug dealers and things like this. So I think I found a lot of my activities limited to the home. And so I became fascinated by art, making comic books, um, you know, getting lost in my CDs and my record collections and mm -hmm. these kinds of things. So I, I had those activities. and. My life was uh, uh, going to after-school art programs, church, and music, and then eventually, when I was 12 years old, um, after years of begging mm -hmm. for music lessons, uh, I was able to start cello lessons at the age of 12. And I was very fortunate to have uh, a wonderful teacher uh, named Vivian Barton, who lives in Philadelphia and is a member of Philomel and other wonderful Baroque ensembles and so um, she was my teacher for like 12 years and my whole entire arts education was here in Philadelphia I never had to leap, go very far to find amazing art programs mm -hmm. uh, everything is here so where were you taking art classes as a youngster well when I was young uh, my school didn't have a very strong art program so I went to a program in Southampton near uh, a factory uh, called Oscar Huber where my father worked and they had this uh, little art school that my dad saw and he knew how much I loved to make art so he enrolled me into that school and I was there from the ages of 10 to maybe um, 14 mm -hmm. and it was a wonderful program it really trained young people in um, fine arts and in very like you know just realism and learning how to make uh, how to render and I did a lot of oil painting in there and then eventually I through school, started taking uh, music classes, but then my father uh, was encouraged by the teacher to get me private lessons. And my father himself said that he was artistic as a kid, but never had the opportunity to ever do these things because the family was too poor. So he wanted to do for us what was never done for him. So I think that that's what encouraged him uh, to have me and my three other siblings attend conservatory, do art classes, karate classes. Like, you, if we were into it, he was like, all right, let's do it, because he wanted to provide for us what he never had a chance to do as a kid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about siblings and if your parents were artistic, and it sounds like it, they just held up the creative and active life as something really important for you. Well, I think for them, it was sort of like a first-generation thing. They were first-generation. Uh, my, my parents are both from uh, Puerto Rico, and they as first generations had to really sort of be become adults very quickly because uh, their parents didn't speak English proficiently and so they had to sort of be um, grown-ups very fast, help provide for the family and all of these kinds of things. And I think 
that sort of does something to you when you're like, you know, when I become a parent, at least for them, it was like, we're going to do this differently or we're going to raise our family differently. We're going to give our kids the opportunities that we never had. And so I was very fortunate to have uh, parents that had that mindset. Mm -hmm. And because of that, anything that we asked for or any kind of interest that we had outside of school, my dad was like, we'll do it. Like, we'll totally get into Mm -hmm. it. So Mm -hmm. I was very, very lucky Mm -hmm. with that. And so now you're providing art education for students and young people in Philadelphia through Tayer Puerto Riqueño. Can you talk about some of the programs or what you you bring to that program? Absolutely. Uh, I am the manager of a teen open studio program called the Youth Artist Program. And what it does, uh, it is just a, a space where young people can come and they can build a portfolio and they also get uh, private tutoring because we have a tutor there that comes after school. And what we provide is a space where a young person in high school can really explore their creativity and explore the kind of art that they want to make, whether it's videography, fine art, printmaking. Um, We do a major project for skill-based learning, and then the student can work on a personal project or several personal projects. And then we, in collaboration with the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Esperanza High School, and the Big Picture Alliance, and um, the Media uh, Charter School, we collectively work together every summer to run a summer program uh, called the Delphi Teen Summer Media Program, which is an amazing six-week intensive uh, video program. And um, th- yeah, that's, that's, that's what we do mm-hmm. at, uh, as um, uh, through the Taller Puerto Riqueño, which is an inner city uh, Latino Arts uh, and Cultural Center. Mm -hmm. So um, there are many of your paintings and drawings on your website, and we're going to show some on the art blog and Mm -hmm. link to them, link to your website as well. Um, I'm wondering how your own art making influences the work you may do with students or the Mm -hmm. teaching you may do with students. So I'm wondering, I guess, two things. Can you talk a little bit about your own work, Um, maybe your painting, for example, um, and then how your experience with art making and your own art education comes through for the students. Mm. And I guess um, just to kind of add to this question, I know it's getting a little long, but um, one of the things I noticed in your paintings is that um, there's religious imagery, imagery Mm -hmm. of saints, martyrs, um, you know, um, often very beautiful young figures. And um, I don't know, I guess, what do you, what do you think about when you're making art and how might some of that translate for a student? Well, a lot of my art is multi-layered, but I think the best way to think about it or to talk about it is that I see myself as a visual anthropologist, Mm. and instead of writing essays, I make paintings and music, and then I try to talk about it in some writing. So I did make a, uh, I have made several art books through a print-on-demand website called blurb.com, and in those books, I talk a lot about, I have a lot of writing about the art. But in general, I look at a subject, oftentimes it's related to um, the phenomenon of Latinidad and like, well, what is that? And when I was uh, first working at Taller Puerto Riqueño, we were given a tour of this amazing exhibit at the Philadelphia Museum of Art called Tesoros or Treasures, and it was all about colonial Latin America. And that changed my life. It was an amazing show. And what I saw there for me was the nucleus of what Latin America is. And this mixing and this um, integration of 
many different cultures wrapped up into one new identity. And so for me, that really summed up the Latino experience, if you will, um, or at least how I was perceiving Latinidad. And I think it's a very broad description. I don't think there's one way to define it. But for me, that was a huge inspiration. So a lot of the martyrs and the saints and these kinds of figures I repurposed from early Baroque, uh, or at least early Latin American Baroque art. And those um, figures also relate to my religious upbringing. I wasn't brought up a Catholic. I was brought up in an evangelical church. But that imagery, nonetheless, was always present to some degree. And so it was something that was in my subconscious. And then I was using that subconscious imagery to talk about my identity as a Latino person because I grew up, and I know many people can identify with this, I grew up uh, with the idea that assimilation is good, you know, that you need to learn English and that you need to really embrace this uh, you know, the, the landscape in which you are in because you need to go to college, you need to get a good job, and you need to be able to communicate clearly. And I think that that comes from the first generation kind of mentality where, you know, we need to assimilate. Maybe we even need to change the way we pronounce our last name. I mean, I have an uncle, I won't say who, who actually changed his name so that his coworkers could pronounce it. And I think that that assimilation is very key. But when I started working at the Tayer, I saw how valuable one's cultural identity was to understanding who they were as a person and where they are in the world. So for me, I was just eating mm. anything that had to do with Latin American culture, Latin American art, you know, like anything related to my own Puerto Rican identity because I knew absolutely nothing, you know, and none of that was provided at, uh, at the college I went to. You know, they didn't really go into anything Mesoamerican unless you wanted to go to do a specific class or do something specific, maybe in grad school. But um, you know, Western art history is very broad, and it has to be, um, because there's so much. And so then I had to take it upon myself and be responsible for my own um, art history uh, education in reference to understanding, well, what is my art history? You know, Does Puerto Rico have an art history? Does Ecuador have an art history? Mm -hmm. Does Colombia have an art history? Uh, you know, of course they do, but what is it? Mm -hmm. And it's incredible. And mm -hmm. it was, and for me, it's still a constant journey. And so my art making is like learning about these things, digesting it, and then sharing it. And then I do the same, and I try to do the same thing with the music. So that's the muse, and then the the, the art and the painting, and then the music, and then the persona that I create in the music, or the persona that I create that performs the music is all is all a part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've seen you perform and I was describing to you a little bit earlier that when I saw you, you know, you wear a blue, a blue robe or at least at the time <laughs> I saw you perform, yeah. you were wearing a blue robe and I and you were performing at the Fleischer Art Memorial mm -hmm. and I immediately thought of the Virgin Mary mm -hmm. in her blue robes. Um, and then you also had sort of blue tears or blue mm -hmm. makeup uh, sort of you know, just sort of coming down your from your eyes and your cheeks like a crying saint or martyr yeah. or something. Um, and it is a, it, you mentioned that this this is a persona performing the music. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about this self-fashioning and this identity at once? It appears to me to be 
um, multi-gendered and uh, crossing many time periods. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're also, the music you play is also very layered and multiple in that it at times sounds um, like broke older music and mm -hmm. at times sounds like David Bowie or some, <laughs> you know, something of the 20th century or uh, clearly, you know, contemporary. Mm -hmm. um, so it does seem like you're crossing many, many boundaries and including many different influences. What is that persona or uh, you've talked about it a little bit, but can you say more about that self-fashioning? Right. So um, the last record that I produced was called La Dolorosa. And I wanted very much to connect the art making with the music and the way I was presenting the music. And I also knew that more people were going to hear the music and see my performances than they would ever see my visual work, mm. just because I think I've discovered an, a, a more immediate audience in that. And um, I worked with a wonderful costume designer. Her name is, her name is uh, Sienna Martz. And she created this robe for me that is made of silk, and the colors are based off of um, the Piero della Francesca painting of uh, Christ's baptism. So we took mm -hmm. those colors out of that, and we made, she made this beautiful robe, hand-dyed it. I mean, it's completely handmade. Um, and I told her that I wanted to look like a statue come to life, like one of those um, statues that you see in those churches in South America that are that look very real, have glass eyes, and like mm -hmm. maybe some a lot of times real human hair. And so, um, and my favorite saint, or my favorite uh, version of the um, Madonna, I should say, uh, is the Our Virgin, Our Lady of Sorrows, or in Spanish, La Dolorosa, and she looks. So she looks like she's in all of this pain and all of, this, all of these tears, but she always looks so beautiful. And I think that that was, to me, a very dramatic presence. And a lot of the songs I was creating were dramatic in themselves, so I thought she would be the best kind of figure to personify in my live performance. So the makeup always looks like tears uh, running down my face. And then I have long hair, so I just let it lay loose and then I have this robe and I always, uh, I put on makeup and everything, but it's it's a, definitely a character. And so I think as each album I produce, there will be a different character that will present that work. And so it will be a different costume or a different look or a different thing. Um, I used to play in a band called Rasputina for a while and that's where I learned the importance of, or the value of costuming really. So, um, that was a time where I experimented a lot and I learned a lot about costuming just because I was given permission to and it was my job. Otherwise, I would have never invested that amount of time or money in costuming. And so from that, I knew that I could really make something powerful, especially since I'm sitting down and I'm playing a cello. Like I'm not running around, I'm not dancing on stage, I'm just sitting playing a cello. So it's almost like a recital. So what can I give visually that will make the performance more palpable and a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. So that was another reason I, I was doing that. Nice. Um, so I think June 10th, this coming Friday, mm -hmm. you have an album coming out and you yeah. also have some performances through July. Can you tell us about uh, what's happening for you now, your next, your next musical events? Well, I, um, 
am releasing an EP based on a song. It's sort of like a single release, but I have some remixes of a song called uh, Virgen del Carmen, or um, uh, I think translates to um, uh, Our Lady, I guess, you know, the, Our Virgin of Carmen or Carmelite. I, f I forget the translation, I'm sorry. Um, but she, uh, that particular song is very glossy, has like electronic beats in it, and I created several versions, one inspired by uh, the music of Hildegard von Bingen, so I took her style and I tried to adapt it, and so it's just like a, a single with like four tracks, like the original and then like three remixes, and I play the cello, violin, and viola, so I did like a string quartet version of the song, and, um, Beyond that, I have a performance uh, in July with David Antonio Cruz. I'll have all this information on my website. Um, but he is an artist based in New York, and I've been working with him on a wonderful project based on the final days of uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, who was a poet from Spain, and his work um, that he did not publish but were actually letters to his lover that people did not know about. Um, we're doing, I'm, I'm writing music to the, to those poems. And so I've already done like about, um, six pieces, have been performing them with David and, uh, we're going to do a performance at Brick, uh, in Brooklyn in July. And we're really excited about that. And, um, otherwise, you know, just teaching and doing more, uh, things with um, online media. I'm in pre-production for an online, uh, a web series right now. So we're just working, I'm working on that with um, different folks, um, working with Afrotaino Productions in Philadelphia. We do, they do a lot of bookings. Uh, I do, they, they book a lot of my shows and um, yeah, just mm -hmm. doing all that. It's amazing. You're such a busy person and you have such a rich ar artistic life. Um, <laughs> What are your days like? I mean, is this sort of, are you living your dream? Do you um, I think so. have, have more things you want to do? Well, What's I it like to be you? Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think to be me is just trying to, um, just trying every day to do what I love and to do it at the best I, I possibly can um, without feeling like I'm sacrificing my life. So, you know, I still make time for friends and family, but I try to be really decisive about how I use my time and what I do. So, I mean, I, I go to Thayer, and then I do the administrative work, and then I do the teaching, and then after that, I go straight to my studio, and I have my agenda for the day, you know, for like, okay, we're gonna do these things in the studio today, and then we're gonna go home, say hi to the dogs, and, um, you know, maybe read something, do something else, call some people, but yeah, I think, I, I just take my personal artistic work so seriously, and for me, it's, um, re even if I'm not making money from it, it's just so important that I'm always doing it. It's just doing it, so. Yeah, that's my life there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it's always a pleasure to watch you sing and perform oh, and um, to see your artwork. So thank you for being with us today, and Yay. thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to be on Art Blog Radio. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks thank you so, so much. much.